I've made a conscious effort to continue to pursue what I do, but I know I've never felt more vulnerable than being a dad. Hi, this is Joshua David Stein. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. Today, I welcome to the show the legendary surfer Laird Hamilton. Laird is widely considered to be one of the best surfers of all time. He's ridden the heaviest waves with the most style. He pretty much invented toe-in surfing and stand-up paddleboarding and hydrofoiling. And now at 53, he's still pushing the boundaries of what is possible to do with a human body aboard in the ocean. But as captured in the new documentary, Take Every Wave, The Life of Laird Hamilton, it hasn't always been smooth or easy. He was a troublemaking son of a single mother in rough-and-tumble Oahu, whose adoptive father, pioneering surfer Bill Hamilton, had a quick temper and a heavy hand. But it hasn't been boring either. From modeling to acting to starting two families to riding giants around the world, Laird's life has been one epic ride. Laird is a father of three daughters, two with his current wife, the volleyball star Gabriel Reese. The family live in a remote valley in Kauai, and that's where I reached Laird by phone to talk about embracing danger and how following your passion is the best thing you can do for your children, even if it takes you out to sea. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Fowlery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. Hello. Laird Hamilton. Hello, Doc. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. Well, I just finished watching the documentary Take Every Wave, and that kind of filled me up with a bunch of questions, but I kind of wanted to start with your relationship with your daughters. You have three. What What are their names? Uh, my oldest daughter is Isabella, and then the middle daughter is Reese, and then my youngest is Brody. And how old are they? Brody just turned 10, Reese is 14, and... Bella is going to be 23. One of the things that struck me throughout your life in general is your approach to fear. Someone in the documentary says it's like you have the opposite impulse to fear. You run towards it. You run towards danger. How has being a dad changed your relationship with danger, if at all? An interesting thing about being a father is your fear of your children being okay is far greater than your fear of you not being okay, you know? I still go about doing what I do because I don't think it's fair to put that onus on children. People have a tendency to say, oh, well, I used to do this and I used to do that and then I had kids. But that kind of puts the onus on them. They didn't ask to be brought in the world. You brought them in and then you say, well, I stopped being who I was because I brought them in. That right. kind of, it seems strange. So I've made a conscious effort to continue to pursue what I do, but I know I've never felt more vulnerable than being a dad. I feel a vulnerability that, you know, having children, because you can somewhat control what you do in a dangerous situation when you're in it, but you can't help them navigate it. You know, they have to learn on their own. I don't know the mechanics of big wave surfing, but I guess I can ask you because I'm interviewing you. Do you feel like as you're surfing these huge waves, you are confronting dangerous situations on a like a second to second basis in terms of small body adjustments where you need to have the decision making in your bones and kind of instinctively how to keep your balance? Is it like that granular, like every millisecond? Well, during the act itself, when you're riding a giant critical wave, something that's critical that if you make a, a slight mistake, the consequences are monumental. Yeah, it's not that way every second. But yes, there are definitely moments when, you know, you need to be completely aligned. And how do you 
prepare, I guess, your daughters. You said you can't control how they act in a dangerous situation. But to some extent, I guess you can prepare them for when it gets hairy, how to deal with it. Is that a conversation or is that showing them? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's really leading by example. I let them see me do, you know, that's why in, in one way I think it's important that I continue to do what I do. And if I don't want to, it's because I don't want to, not because of them. It is important for them to see, you know, not only how I respond in those situations, but how it affects my overall wellness and, and, you know, how it affects me emotionally and physically. What does it look like when someone does something that they're passionate about that has a dangerous factor to it? And really that all that really represents is a level of commitment too. if you're super passionate and you're fully committed to it, then you're going to find yourself on the cutting edge of... On the lip. Yeah, well, whatever it is you do. So many times there's danger, but when you're fully committed, you're actually safer than if you're ambivalent or if you're hesitating or if you are riven with self-doubt in that moment. I think it might have been Jaws, one of the, the famous waves that you've ridden, and you thought to yourself, well, if I bail, I'm not going to make it. And if I stay on the board... I still might not make it, but if I bail, I certainly won't. So I'm just going to stay on. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a metaphor for life, right? Like at the end of the day, I mean, it's about commitment to it. And sometimes you just have to hold your line when you want to give up. Have you felt that on land in terms of your family, in terms of the difficulty of being a father? In the documentary, you talk a little bit about, I guess it was before you and Gabrielle, your wife had children, but... You had gone through a difficult time. Do you feel that desire not to give up, to see it through on land? I definitely think there's an overflow. I mean, I think it's a little bit habits. You know, the old saying, how you do the little things is how you do the big things. I always say that the ocean is the greatest teacher, but traits that the ocean has cultivated, you know, inevitably filter into your life, right? You know, like I have a tendency to get the more bad the situation is the calmer and the better i get yeah and that's been ultimately you know what's allowed me to to be successful in the ocean is that ability to calm it bring it all down calm it down because it gives you time right so you learn that and so the more chaotic and the more perceived dangerous or whatever the situation is you get calmer and more deliberate that definitely helps in aspects of parenting and i have a tendency to react a little more to some of the lighter stuff and then when it's real intense i like to be there and deliver and not just lose it and and not take advantage of that not only that skill but that moment that's where a lot of growth happens the fatherly podcast is brought to you by cheese dippers by the laughing cow Every kid's got an imagination all their own. Whether they're racing monster trucks, playing teacher, or dreaming of setting foot on Mars, even the wildest imaginations are hungry for more. Feed your kid's appetite for adventure with Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. With perfectly crunchy breadsticks and creamy cheese, it's a crunchable, dippable, enjoy-however-you-wantable snack that's always a favorite. Plus, it's made to go anywhere their imagination takes them. Cheese Dippers by The Laughing Cow. Snack like you. And now back to the show. One of the interesting, my pet theories about the the lessons of the ocean is that fundamentally the ocean, the waves, the tides, they're not interested in you as a person. There's nothing personal about it. It just is what it is and you're riding it. 
It's not for or against you. And I feel like being able to bring that mentality back to land is especially the challenges of having children that they're not for or against you. It can be a hassle. It can be a tough situation, but the world is fundamentally sort of uh, neutral, powerful, but neutral. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we, we want to think we're special and everything evolves around us, but unfortunately it doesn't. And, you know, I was saying, you know, that we're all equal before a wave and the wave doesn't discriminate. The wave doesn't have an opinion one way or the other. It just is. And, and there's a reliability in that, you know, there's a reliability in the wave doing what it does. And there's a consistency, even within every different wave and with every different moment and every different swell, there's a, a certain consistency and reliability that the ocean has that you just don't have on land, at least not with people. Because people aren't that, they don't operate that consistent. Well, I think that that was a point that's brought out beautifully in the film in the sense that you had a pretty rocky childhood in Hawaii because of being a minority uh, in your school and being beaten up for that because your stepfather, Bill Hamilton, the surfer, uh, you guys had some tension, I guess, and it got physical. and He was growing up more like an older brother. (laughs) Yeah, he was 17 and a half when... He yeah. entered into your family. But yeah. but the ocean was something that was very predictable. You say it in the film. You were driven out to sea, almost. Absolutely. And all of the uncertainty and all of the chaos and all of the lack of understanding, it was a place like a sanctuary. But it was also something that gave me purpose. And I think as a dad, that's one thing I really would like to try to, you know, help my daughters with is to find purpose, you know, that to... To find, you know, and I, I quote the movie The Jerk, but to find their special purpose, whether you got to subsidize that, whether you're an artist and you subsidize it with another work, or you actually are able to do the thing for your work, you know, the passion and the happiness and the fulfillment and the, you know, and all that stuff. As a dad, I, I would always say, you know, probably my greatest goal will be to try to raise a content human because I don't see very many out there. And I think inevitably we're not. Humans weren't, aren't really meant to be content, and that seems to be a real awkward place for us to learn how to get to, and it, it's kind of rare. Well, I think the the challenge I feel as a dad who has had a father, and you are, you know, uh, a guy who had a dad and uh, a family situation, and you were driven to, if I can say it, you were driven to greatness, you were driven to extremes, to always pushing the boundaries, but one of the parts of maybe why you got into the ocean was because you were unhappy on land. And I think now that we're fathers and we want our kids to be great, greater than we were, it's like, well, is it worth it to push them? No. You know, no. is it, you, no. had a, you, had, <laughs> yeah. you had something that pushed you to the sea. And, and you're saying no. And I, I agree. I think it's a natural instinct or a natural question for fathers. It's like, well, how much do I push? Because I want them to achieve greatness. But there's unhappiness that led you maybe to seek that greatness. And you don't want them to be unhappy. My wife and I both talk about that. You know, we don't want our daughters to be inflicted by the things that that really made us who we are. And it's kind of, that's a tricky thing. Because then it's like, you don't want them to have to go through the stuff. You try to save them from it. But in that process, there's a certain part of it that, you know, you might not make them. or, I mean, you're not, you're not going to make them be anything that they're not going to want to be, but they might not have the edges and some of the things that you have because of what you went through. 
they are their own people and they will be going through their own things that, and I won't be able to stop those things from happening and, and all that. I can have some influence along the way and give love and, and try to be there. But besides that, they have to go through their own personal journey. And, and that's a kind of a weird, that's going to be a tricky thing. Like, Hey, I'm the parent, but then your kids have to go through this journey that you kind of really don't necessarily get to, to have huge influence on whether you think so or not. But I definitely don't want my children to, to be inflicted with some of the things that I experienced, even though it would, it might be really great for them. I don't want that happen. <laughs> I know your Bill Hamilton is in the documentary. Do you still have a relationship with him? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I think, you know, there's the old saying that time heals all wounds. And there's a lot of truth to that. We see him and I think he's at a place in his life where he can have a relationship and I'm, I'm at a place where I can. And at a certain point, you stop, you know, caring about all these things that you think are so important when you're young. And, you know, as, I think as a parent, you start to sympathize with your parents. Yeah, you, you sounded like a horror. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, I, 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 listen, I'm fortunate right now, and I'm crossing my fingers that my daughters aren't putting me through the things that I put my mom and, and Bill through. Do you have any relationship uh, with your birth father? Uh, he passed away a while ago. He reached out right right as he was passing away, but he, he passed away quickly, and it was there was nothing to come out of it. But you know, I think sometimes right before we're ready to exit, we want to make all amends with all of our things, you know? Not always possible, though. No, and some things you can't undo no matter what. I met my real dad, but I think the fact that he had no participation, and part of that could have been because that was what my mom wanted, too, right? You can always go, oh, well, this parent did that, and they're like, yeah, but that parent, you know, there's so many details. Yeah, and then on the other hand, you're, you're a kid when it happens. By the time you're an adult, those kind of feelings have already crystallized within you. So... What, oh, yeah. Whatever actually happened, if there is an actual, is almost immaterial. Well, it's all because it's always only about how you feel about it, not about what really happened. One of the things that I think is so interesting is you have had a kind of stable group of guys, the strapped crew that you pioneered um, tow and surfing with, now the hydrofoil, big wave surfing back in the day. How have you seen your cohorts deal with fatherhood? Have they done it all in similar ways? Have some guys changed? We didn't have like some weird transition from bachelor to fatherhood kind of thing. You know, that wasn't that, You know, the effect being a father has on everybody is different. And I, I think some of the boys probably transitioned into the domestication of fatherhood more easily than other ones. And some were like, hey, you know, it's not about pursuing certain things that I was. And, you know, now I'm a dad and, da, 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 and all those things. I have a certain selfishness in my pursuit of the ocean and my relationship with it. And I think that part of it has to do with my upbringing and, and the, the loyalty I have to the ocean for its loyalty to me. There is a moment where Gabby says part of the deal is I know he loves me as much as the ocean, but I would never ask him to choose between us. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I think I wouldn't be who I am for her if I wasn't in the water pursuing the ocean in the way I do because that represents my passion. So yeah. at the end, it just, it could be any passion. I can just say, Hey, I'll just change the word of, you know, ocean and say passion. Like if I didn't continue to pursue the, the thing that I'm passionate about other than her. And sometimes I think women, you know, Gabby's an amazing woman and she realizes that ultimately it's her in her best interest 
that like, hey, it, it's better for me when he's pursuing the thing that brings him that thing and not take it personally like it's taking from her. Because I think some women could misconstrue, you know, hey, I'm passionate about the ocean for, well, what about me? And it's like, well, no, that's, these are. They're not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive. And actually they're more, it becomes more harmonious because as a male having a mission, you know, having a hunt, having a pursuit makes us more complete, which at the end gives us an ability to, to, to be better men for, for our, our, our woman, you know, for our partner. You are in your 50s now, correct? 53? Yeah. You have always used your body and had your body be such a big part of your identity. As the ocean has tides and there's an unchangeable nature to it, so too is there a decay of the human body and death is on the horizon, hopefully not soon. But how do you deal with that, that change in your body and the idea that you won't always be able to do what you've done? Well, you know, I mean, listen, I have good mentors that I look up to that, you know, are 70 and 80 and 90 that give me a, uh, an example of what it can look like. We have a saying, right? Never let your memories be bigger than your dreams. For me, not falling victim to the social handicaps of, hey, you're old now and what are you going to do and all that. Right. Crap that, that we that we subject ourselves with, which, again, for me, I feel like at times can just be another excuse for us to stop, you know, having to be responsible for it and maybe putting in the effort it takes to 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 continue to, you know, run the system. How do you feel physically now? Fantastic. I mean, in a way, in some ways, you know, when everything is in harmony, I'm feeling as, as good as I've ever felt. Yeah, And again, at the end, it's like we just talked about, it doesn't matter what's happened, it's how you feel about what happened that really is affecting you. And so I've never been in a better place. My children, my wife, my work, my this, my, you know, just everything I feel like is, is, uh, in harmony. Is it? Yeah. As, as, as best it can be and ever changing and all that stuff, but it seems to be all in sync in a way, unlike that it's ever been. Do you think you're going to die out on the ocean? I don't know. I don't think so. But if I did, it wouldn't be the worst. Let's just put it that way. I mean, we're all going, you know, like we had a little missile scare over here. I heard. And uh, I thought, well, you know, if I was on a wave and I just vaporized on a wave, that probably wouldn't be the worst way to go. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and they're pretty simple. And I eagerly await your response. Are you ready? Yeah. Are your children, which are Brody, Joe, Isabella and Reese... Named after anyone in particular? Yeah. Well, Brody's not, but Reese is after Gabby's family name. And then she, Viola has the middle name of my mother. So, yeah, well, there's some connections to the names. Do you have any cute nicknames for your children? I call Reese, Reesey. And uh, I call Brody, Booty, or uh, Bodie. Like, I, I, I call her Budueska. Yeah, I got some couple little names. Budueska? Budueska and Isabella is as Bella. We call her Belly or Bella. I like Budaleska, which is like half Buddhist and half like um, a pasta. Exactly. (laughs) What do they call you? Oh, dad. You know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Just dad. I'm just dad. How often do you see them? Well, right now they're unfortunately, they've all left me for a few days, but normally every day I'm with them. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Hawaii. And okay, they're not with you there. So they're not with me. They just left a couple of days ago and they'll be back. 
because of my work and because of how my lifestyle is, is we're, we're with them a lot. We homeschool. You homeschool? They're with us in, in, in a way that probably 90% of all the parents don't have that amount of volume of time that we're with our children. Why do you homeschool? Because we travel and because both Gabby and I really didn't have great experiences in public schools. And so we find that they excel in it. They're able to focus in on their stuff. And and, and real learning takes three hours and schools are eight hours. So what are they yeah. doing the other eight hours? Getting know? yelled at. <laughs> it, yeah, or, or, or learning bad stuff from friends or whatever it is. I mean, school's kind of set up in a way, in some forms, as formal babysitting, you know? Do you and Gabby teach the kids, or do you have, like, no. a teacher? Yeah. Oh, no. We, we can barely parent the kids. We're not going to try to teach them. <laughs> Describe yourself as a father in three words. Uh, loving, affectionate, um, adventurous, and safe. Safe. Yeah, safe. Describe your father, Bill, in three words. Young, angry, <laughs> Now or then? Then. Uh, young then, yeah. and and uh, artistic. Now? Old, angry, and artistic. Yeah, yeah, I know. Less angry. Less young. Yeah, less young and, and less artistic. <laughs> <laughs> what are your strengths as a father? My, one of my strengths as a father is my, my uh, understanding, my ability to be sympathetic, to be uh, compassionate. I think, yeah, I think I'm... At the end, when it's really important, I think I'm pretty compassionate. And what about your weakness? My patience can be a little rough in my in my attitude. What is your biggest regret as a father? Not knowing if I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Yeah, that's my biggest regret, not knowing what to do sometimes, you know? What is your favorite activity to do with your kids? That's your special father and daughter thing. You know, just to be in the ocean with them, but just to... Just being with them, you know, just being with them. How old is your youngest? Uh, 10. Brody's 10. So what is she into? She's into ponies. Yeah. She's into ponies. Um, like my little ponies or actual life-size ponies? No, she's into actual ponies, like horses, like jumping. Does she do that? Do you do it with her? I'm not much of a jumper. <laughs> but like we played tennis the other day. That was fun. Yeah. They're both, they're both can hit the, the snot out of the tennis ball. Now you're an old hand at it, but were you scared about raising daughters in this world? Well, uh, you know, it's ongoing, but as I realized, in the beginning you think they're vulnerable, and then you realize they're a lot tougher than we are, and then you're like, good luck to the guy, whoever it is. What heirloom did your father give to you, if any? No, I don't really have one. Well, in some ways, I guess, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but you learned how to surf with Bill Hamilton. Yeah, that's an heirloom. Well, we've had some pretty good experiences in the riptide, you know, getting out of riptides. You and him? Tell me about one. Oh, we got we had one when I was real young that he I was caught in it, and he came out to get me, and then we were both caught in it, and I was holding onto his neck, and he swam for probably 30 minutes, and at which point he was still going backwards, and so we decided to let it take us out. And when it took us out, it actually brought us back in, but it's a it was an education and, you know, that they always bring you back. You just described a metaphor for letting go. Uh, amen. I had, uh, I've got a few. Yeah. What heirloom do you want to leave for your children, if anything? I want to leave them with the concept of that you can love what you do. And it's all about work. My mom left me with that, you know, that one thing about my mom was she just was an incredible worker. Unfortunately, in this physical plane that we're on, there's just no way out of it. There's just there's just no way to avoid 
the effort. And, and I think, yeah, I want to leave them with that. I feel like surfing offers so many perfect metaphors. <laughs> like one reason why so many people are attracted to it, but even just the idea of you just have to work through it. Like, you know, when you almost get tossed on shore and you have to get back out to the waves and you're going through the white water, you just need to go through it. You need to keep yep. on paddling and get beyond it. Yep. There's no alternative. No, there's just no other way around it. I told Gabby's story, you know, there's a spot and I'm sitting on the beach right now looking at it. And I can remember when I was a kid trying for an hour to get out through the waves and getting washed back in and then just to the point where you're in tears. And then you finally get out, you catch one wave, and then you're right back in and take another hour to try to get through it again. You just do that over and over and over until you can't move. And that's a life. <laughs> that's a life. <laughs> Absolutely. What's a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children do not repeat? I was just thinking about there's these stories about you in this lineup at, I forget what wave it was, but just how you were like, you were the alpha male and you went in, you're like, I'm going to take every wave, every wave I want. And there was a lot of controversy, controversy at the time. Is that sort of phase, which you might call like the break everything phase, one that you regret or you wish that they don't go through? Well, unfortunately, I would probably have to still repeat it, given my circumstances and my situation. It was my only route that I knew. And at this point, I still think it's the only route at that time that was going to work for what I needed. Now, these girls are way more intelligent than I ever was. And they're not going to need to go through that kind of stuff. They're already smarter. Right. They have different strategies. Much more sophisticated. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, last question. Besides saying it, how do you make sure your children know that you love them? Part of the way you show your kids you love them is to give them freedom, not to hold them down and to to restrict them, but to give them freedom. You know, unfortunately, the irony is is that, you know, you show love by letting them go. (laughs) You know, that seems, you know, in a way that seems counterintuitive, but That's part of the fact, you know. That's perfect. Well, Laird, enjoy the beach, and I think as they say where you are, aloha. Aloha. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Welcome back to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm joined now with our science editor, Josh Krish. I wanted to talk about fear. One of the most interesting parts of talking to Laird was his relationship with fear. Someone says in the documentary that when he's afraid, Laird's different because he runs toward the danger. Tell me a little bit about just how fear operates in the human mind. Sure. Scientists love studying fear. It's one of their favorite subjects. They run towards fear as well. Scientists run toward the study of fear while cowering in their laboratories. (laughs) But scientists love fear. They've broken fear down into basically two categories. We call it learned fear and innate fears. It's exactly what it sounds like. Innate fears are the sort of fears that you have from the moment that you're born or from the moment that you're able to sense something that you might be afraid of. Learned fears are the kinds of fears that you acquire through experiencing things that are terrifying and then becoming afraid of them so that you won't have to experience that again. So what are some examples of innate fear? Basically, all mammals, whether it's a mouse or a human, have at least two innate fears. And you get this at basically any age and almost every species. And that is fear of falling from a high place and fear of loud noises. The way that we've tested the fear of falling from a high place in children is hilarious. We love scaring babies for science. So one of the most famous studies that demonstrates that small children are afraid of falling to their deaths, even when they're quite young, is the visual cliff experiment. The visual cliff experiment takes some eight-month-olds. Eight-month-olds already know by eight months of age that they're not supposed to fall off of cliffs. So if you put them on a ledge, they won't jump off the ledge. They'll stay there and wait. What if you put this child's mother 
five feet away, and between the edge of a table and the mother, you put a plexiglass surface. So, in fact, there's a perfectly safe surface for the child to crawl across between the child and its mother, but from the child's perspective, it's glass, so it doesn't look like there's anything there at all. It looks like as soon as they step off the edge, they're going to fall. Can the mother convince the child to walk across something that doesn't look like it's there? Have there been follow-up studies about the <laughs> severe neuroses that those kids have growing up? They probably end up going in the surfing, I understand. <laughs> they have to run to the waves to escape their problems. <laughs> but uh, bottom line, every time you do the visual cliff experiment, you get the same result. The majority of infants refuse to go onto the seemingly unsupported surface, even though it's perfectly safe, demonstrating that they have an innate fear of falling. These studies are always very carefully controlled to make sure the children haven't fallen before or right. seen somebody fall. So they have no way of knowing at eight months old that they're going to fall and hurt themselves. And yet they know not to crawl out on a surface that doesn't look sturdy, even if their mothers tell them it's fine, which shows a real innate fear. Tell me about the other experiment you were mentioning. Yeah, there's a controversy among scientists as to whether children are innately afraid of spiders and snakes and creepy crawly things. This nobody can agree on. That children are afraid of falling and that children are afraid of loud noises we see, we've experienced, we've studied with the visual cliff. But whether they're innately afraid of spiders and snakes and such is is not at all clear. There was a recent study, again about terrifying small children. Researchers showed six-month-olds... Same kids. Not the same kids. No, different damaged children. The researchers showed six-month-olds images of snakes and spiders, and then they'd swap them out for images of birds and trees and flowers. Nice images. Now, six-month-olds don't scream when you show them a spider, so you have to use a more subtle cue to figure out whether or not they're afraid. The researchers determined that pupil dilation, when the baby's pupils dilate, that's a sign that the baby's terrified, or at least that the baby's feeling an innate fear response. So they watched the baby's pupils very carefully. They found that the eyes remained completely normal when they showed them flowers or trees or birds. Show a six-month-old spider, and the pupils dilate. It's incredible. So that's a strong support for the theory that there's a third category of innate fear, which is creepy Crawlies are things that our ancestors had to be afraid of. Did they do that in non-human babies? It's been done in non-human primates. It's also been done in a bunch of other mammals. Uh, Non-human primates are all afraid of spiders and snakes. It's unclear whether it's innate, though, or whether they learned it because they met spiders and snakes. Even the scientists who say it's not innate say that we are definitely quicker to catch on to fear of spiders and snakes because of our evolutionary history of being afraid of them. So even the school of thought that says it's not innate kind of feels like we have a leg up when it comes to spiders and snakes. A predisposition, almost. Yeah. So there's really two schools of thought. There's the scientists who say innate is falling and loud noises and everything else is not, but there's a third category of uh, leg up that evolution gives us, and that's spiders and snakes. And the other group says there's just three innate fears, fear of falling, fear of loud noises, and fear of spiders and snakes. But then something like burning your hand on the stove. Totally a learned fear. Learned fear. As you can tell from the fact that most children need to do it at least once before they're afraid of it. But you can tell by the fact that that's a cliche for learned fear. <laughs> there's actually two ways you can learn fear, too. There's conditioning versus social fear learning. Conditioning is what you're talking about with a hand on the stove. Conditioning is, uh, I got bit by a dog and now I'm afraid of dogs. There's another way that you can learn fear without ever getting bit by a dog, and that's seeing somebody else get bit by a dog and scream in pain. That vision lets you experience fear without it actually happening to you, and that's another way children learn fear. I'm sure evolutionarily that was incredibly important. Oh yeah, I mean, if everybody has to die to figure out what's dangerous, you don't (laughs) evolve. It's very important for every species to be able to identify when something bad is happening to another member of the species so that they can learn not to let that happen to them. Yeah. So that's what we call social fear learning as opposed to conditioned fear, which is something you actually have to experience yourself. Talking to Laird and watching the documentary, which I found heartbreaking 
but also interesting is even though we perceive the ocean, these gigantic waves to be dangerous, what was going on on the land when he was growing up with his stepfather and getting beat up in school and all this stuff was perhaps even more dangerous. And he says it himself was put out to sea, so to speak. At least that was safe. At least he, he knew what to expect. But you were saying you don't actually believe he feels fear on the ocean. Tell me what you mean. I think he feels something much closer to exhilaration on the ocean than fear. When I ride a roller coaster, I am afraid, I guess, but I certainly enjoy it. And it's not at all like when I'm afraid that I'm going to die or when a car swoops out in front of me and I think I'm about to get in a car accident. It's a very different feeling. A lot of people mistake exhilaration for fear and call it that and say, I run toward fear. I don't think anybody really runs runs toward fear. I think they run toward exhilaration and something that looks to other people like fear that they're used to managing. I think one of the major differences between exhilaration and fear is that exhilaration is something that you expect you can manage and fear is something that you do not expect you can manage. So there's an automatic fear response that pretty much everybody has. It goes on in your brain. All fear happens in two stages. First, your eyes and your ears send a message to your amygdala. That's the part of your brain that's in charge of fear. That then goes to your muscles, your adrenal glands, your spinal cord. So for example, you hear a balloon pop and suddenly before you know that it's a balloon, before you know exactly what a pop is, your body goes on high alert. That's fear. Then there's a second stage where your frontal cortex, the part of your brain that's in charge of making important decisions, clarifies to you, oh, that's just a balloon, or yes, you might be afraid, but this is a situation we know how to handle. We're strapped well into a roller coaster, and you calm yourself down. Does that two-stage response change in children versus adults, or is it the same? No, it's absolutely different. The control centers of a small child's brain are not fully developed. So whereas a child is just as good as you are at responding to a balloon popping, the child is not as capable of recognizing that it's a balloon. Balloons aren't dangerous. I don't need to freak out right now. So they have response one, that first visceral fear response, just like an adult, but they don't have nearly as much of that calming factor afterwards. Your kids are older than mine, so you probably know that when your children are afraid of something, it's harder to talk them down than it is to talk an adult down. Parents report that their kids are afraid of monsters under the bed. You tell an adult that there are no monsters. You look under the bed and prove there are no monsters. You turn on the light and prove that there's nothing there in the dark. An adult is satisfied. A child continues to be terrified. The reason for that is because they have the first stage of fear working at full capacity, but their ability to take command and control and say, no, that's not something I need to be worried about, simply isn't as developed as it is for an adult. So are there any strategies to help a child deal with the fear when you can't really mitigate it rationally? Not really. I mean, the main thing is not to worry about their fears too much. You obviously should show support. But recognize that when your child's terrified of something and you really can't do anything to calm your child down, that's just their underdeveloped brains doing the same stage one part of fear that yours does without the control aspect that you have. The frontal cortex aspect. That's right, the frontal cortex aspect. You can't let it frustrate you because it's really not something that's in their control. Most children aren't capable yet of managing their fear. Another thing that you can do to help your children with fear is to let them see fear, but only when it's something that they should be afraid of. So you should try to control your own outward fear for things that are ridiculous. For example, if you don't want your child to be afraid of dogs, you need to make sure that you're not running like hell every time a dog shows up because your child will notice that and will learn fear from watching your terrified response. At the same time, if you want to teach your child not to touch an oven, showing on your face healthy fear around fire or healthy fear around a wave that might be dangerous out at sea is the kind of thing that can teach a child without that child having to experience a negative outcome, teach that child how to respond to fear. So you can actually use this. You can weaponize the fact that children 
can learn by looking at what's going on in your face by artificially displaying fear to keep them away from things and artificially not displaying fear to encourage them to try things that are safe. As a father of a six-year-old who is still not sleeping and is still crying out for me every night, tell me when the frontal cortex starts to take over. I mean, it doesn't fully develop until the mid-20s, but don't worry. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. It kicks in a little earlier. By adolescence, it's already there enough that they should be able to manage their fears. At the same time, as we spoke about in our our first season, adolescents still don't have well-developed control centers in their brains, and that's why they take ridiculous risks, because every fiber of their being tells them, let's try this, and the part of them that's supposed to put on the brakes doesn't fully come in until their mid-20s. But at least for the fear response, Response, that, that becomes more manageable once their brain starts growing a little bit. And you'll see that in the adolescent years, certainly. So probably my yelling at him that there are no monsters and he needs to be quiet isn't helpful. What it's probably doing is setting off a different fear response. So it might be helpful. He's probably less afraid of the monsters than he is of you yelling at him now. So that's good. Always a ray of sunshine, Josh. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening to The Fatherly Podcast. Today's show is executive produced by Sandy Smallins. Dave Savage was our engineer. Our theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with some help by Augie Heerenstein. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein, and I think that's it for me. Augie, can you say if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts? Boo, 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 pee, pee. <laughs> but see, the penis is being... <laughs>